0: Chapter 7, Part 2 of The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Harris. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Episode 1, Childhood. Chapter seven, part two. In the afternoon I happened to be with him on the tower of the fort and pointed out a gondola advancing towards the lower gate. He took his spy glass and told me that it was his wife and daughter coming to see him. We went to meet the ladies, one of whom might once have been worth the trouble of an elopement. The other, a young person between fourteen and sixteen, struck me as a beauty of a new style. Her hair was of a beautiful light auburn, her eyes were blue and very fine, her nose a Roman, and her pretty mouth, half open and laughing, exposed a set of teeth as white as her complexion, although a beautiful rosy tint somewhat veiled the whiteness of the last. Her figure was so slight that it seemed out of nature, but her perfectly formed breast appeared an altar on which the god of love would have delighted to breathe the sweetest incense. This splendid chest was, however, not yet well furnished, but in my imagination I gave her all the embalm point which might have been desired, and I was so pleased that I could not take my looks from her. I met her eyes, and her laughing countenance seemed to say to me, Only wait for two years, at the utmost, and all that your imagination is now creating will then exist in reality. She was elegantly dressed in the prevalent fashion, with large hoops, and, like the daughters of the nobility who have not yet attained the age of puberty, although the young countess was marriageable. I had never dared to stare so openly at the bosom of a young lady of quality, but I thought there was no harm in fixing my eyes on a spot where there was nothing yet but in expectation. The count, after having exchanged a few words in German with his wife, presented me in the most flattering manner, and I was received with great politeness. The major joined us, deeming it his duty to escort the countess all over the fortress, and I improved the excellent opportunity thrown in my way by the inferiority of my position. I offered my arm to the young lady, and the count left us to go to his room. I was still an adept in the old Venetian fashion of attending upon ladies, and the young countess thought me rather awkward though i believed myself very fashionable when i placed my hand under her arm but she drew it back in high merriment her mother turned round to inquire what she was laughing at and i was terribly confused when i heard her answer that i had tickled her this is the way to offer your arm to a lady she said and she passed her hand through my arm which i rounded in the most clumsy manner feeling it a very difficult task to resume a dignified countenance. Thinking me a novice of the most innocent species, she very likely determined to make sport of me. She began by remarking that by rounding my arm as I had done I placed it too far from her waist, and that I was consequently out of drawing. I told her I did not know how to draw, and inquired whether it was one of her accomplishments. "'I am learning,' she answered and when you call upon us I will show you Adam and Eve, after the Chevalier Libri. I have made a copy which has been found very fine by some professors, although they did not know it was my work. Why did you not tell them? Because those two figures are too naked. I am not curious to see your Adam, but I will look at your Eve with pleasure, and keep your secret." This answer made her laugh again, and again her mother turned round. I put on the look of a simpleton, for, seeing the advantage I could derive from her opinion of me, I had formed my plan at the very moment she tried to teach me how to offer my arm to a lady. She was so convinced of my simplicity that she ventured to say that she considered her Adam by far more beautiful than her Eve, because in her drawing of the man she had omitted nothing, every muscle being visible while there was none conspicuous in eve it is she added a figure with nothing in it yet it is the one which i shall like best no believe me adam will please you most this conversation had greatly excited me i had on a pair of linen breeches the weather being very warm I was afraid of the major and the countess, who were a few yards in front of us, turning round. I was on thorns. To make matters worse the young lady stumbled, one of her shoes slipped off, and, presenting me her pretty foot, she asked me to put the shoe right. I knelt on the ground, and, very likely without thinking, she lifted up her skirt. She had very wide hoops and no petticoat. What I saw was enough to strike me dead on the spot. When I rose she asked if anything was the matter with me. A moment after, coming out of one of the casemates, her head-dress got slightly out of order, and she begged that I would remedy the accident. But having to bend her head down, the state in which I was could no longer remain a secret for her. In order to avoid greater confusion to both of us she inquired who had made my watch-ribbon. I told her it was a present for my sister and she desired to examine it, but when I answered her that it was fastened to the fob-pocket, and found that she disbelieved me, I added that she could see for herself. She put her hand to it, and a natural but involuntary excitement caused me to be very indiscreet. She must have felt vexed, for she saw that she had made a mistake in her estimate of my character. She became more timid, she would not laugh any more, and we joined her mother and the major who was showing her, in a sentry-box, the body of Marshal de Schulenberg, which had been deposited there until the mausoleum erected for him was completed. As for myself, I felt deeply ashamed. I thought myself the first man who had alarmed her innocence, and I felt ready to do anything to atone for the insult. Such was my delicacy of feeling in those days. I used to credit people with exalted sentiments, which often existed only in my imagination. I must confess that time has entirely destroyed that delicacy. Yet I do not believe myself worse than other men, my equals in age and inexperience. We returned to the Count's apartment, and the day passed off rather gloomily. Towards evening the ladies went away, but the Countess gave me a pressing invitation to call upon them in Venice. The young lady, whom I thought I had insulted, had made such a deep impression upon me that the seven following days seemed very long, yet I was impatient to see her again only that I might entreat her forgiveness and convince her of my repentance. The following day the Count was visited by his son. He was plain-featured, but a thorough gentleman and modest withal. Twenty-five years afterwards I met him in Spain, a cadet in the king's bodyguard. He had served as a private twenty years before obtaining this poor promotion. The reader will hear of him in good time. I will only mention here that when I met him in Spain he stood me out that I had never known him. His self-love prompted this very contemptible lie. Early on the eighth day the Count left the fortress and I took my departure the same evening, having made an appointment at a coffee-house in St. Mark's Square with the Major, who was to accompany me to M. Grimani's house. I took leave of his wife, whose memory will always be dear to me, and she said, "'I thank you for your skill in proving your alibi, but you have also to thank me for having understood you so well. My husband never heard anything about it until it was all over.' As soon as I reached Venice I went to pay a visit to Madame Orio, where I was made welcome. I remained to supper, and my two charming sweethearts, who were praying for the death of the bishop, gave me the most delightful hospitality for the night. At noon the next day I met the Major according to our appointment, and we called upon the Abbe Grimani. He received me with the air of a guilty man begging for mercy and I was astounded at his stupidity when he entreated me to forgive Rosetta and his companion. He told me that the bishop was expected very soon, and that he had ordered a room to be ready for me, and that I could take my meals with him. Then he introduced me to M. Valivero, a man of talent, who had just left the Ministry of War, his term of office having lasted the usual six months. I paid my duty to him, and we kept up a kind of desultory conversation until the departure of the major. When he had left us M. Valavero entreated me to confess that I had been the guilty party in the attack upon Rosetta. I candidly told him that the thrashing had been my handiwork, and I gave him all the particulars, which amused him immensely. He remarked that, as I had perpetrated the affair before midnight, the fools had made a mistake in their accusation but that, after all, the mistake had not materially helped me in proving the alibi, because my sprained ankle, which everybody had supposed a real accident, would of itself have been sufficient. But I trust that my kind reader has not forgotten that I had a very heavy weight upon my conscience, of which I longed to get rid. I had to see the goddess of my fancy, to obtain my pardon or die at her feet. I found the house without difficulty, the count was not at home. The countess received me very kindly, but her appearance caused me so great a surprise that I did not know what to say to her. I had fancied that I was going to visit an angel, that I would find her in a lovely paradise, and I found myself in a large sitting-room furnished with four rickety chairs and a dirty old table. There was hardly any light in the room because the shutters were nearly closed. It might have been a precaution against the heat, but I judged that it was more probably for the purpose of concealing the windows, the glass of which was all broken. But this visible darkness did not prevent me from remarking that the countess was wrapped up in an old tattered gown, and that her chemise did not shine by its cleanliness. Seeing that I was ill at ease, she left the room, saying that she would send her daughter, who, a few minutes afterwards, came in with an easy and noble appearance, and told me that she had expected me with great impatience, but that I had surprised her at a time at which she was not in the habit of receiving any visits. I did not know what to answer, for she did not seem to me to be the same person. Her miserable dishabille made her look almost ugly, and I wondered at the impression she had produced upon me at the fortress. She saw my surprise, and partly guessed my thoughts, for she put on a look not of vexation, but of sorrow which called forth all my pity. If she had been a philosopher she might have rightly despised me as a man whose sympathy was enlisted only by her fine dress, her nobility, or her apparent wealth. But she endeavored to bring me round by her sincerity. She felt that if she could call a little sentiment into play it would certainly plead in her favour. I see that you are astonished, reverend sir, and I know the reason of your surprise. You expected to see great splendour here, and you find only misery. The government allows my father but a small salary, and there are nine of us. As we must attend church on Sundays and holidays, in a style proper to our condition, We are often compelled to go without our dinner, in order to get out of pledge the clothes which urgent need too often obliges us to part with, and which we pledge anew on the following day. If we did not attend Mass the curate would strike our names off the list of those who share the alms of the confraternity of the poor, and those alms alone keep us afloat. What a sad tale! She had guessed rightly. I was touched, but rather with shame than true emotion. I was not rich myself, and, as I was no longer in love, I only heaved a deep sigh, and remained as cold as ice. Nevertheless her position was painful, and I answered politely, speaking with kindness and assuring her of my sympathy. Were I wealthy, I said, I would soon show you that your tale of woe has not fallen on unfeeling ears but I am poor, and being at the eve of my departure from Venice, even my friendship would be useless to you. Then, after some desultory talk, I expressed a hope that her beauty would yet win happiness for her. She seemed to consider for a few minutes, and said, That may happen some day, provided that the man who feels the power of my charms understands that they can be bestowed only with my heart, and is willing to render me the justice I deserve. I am only looking for a lawful marriage, without dreaming of rank or fortune. I no longer believe in the first, and I know how to live without the second, for I have been accustomed to poverty, and even to abject need, but you cannot realize that. Come and see my drawings." "'You are very good, mademoiselle." Alas! I was not thinking of her drawings, and I could no longer feel interested in her eve, but I followed her. We came to a chamber in which I saw a table, a chair, a small toilet-glass, and a bed with the straw palias turned over, very likely for the purpose of allowing the looker-on to suppose that there were sheets underneath. But I was particularly disgusted by a certain smell, the cause of which was recent. I was thunderstruck, and if I had been still in love this antidote would have been sufficiently powerful to cure me instantly. I wished for nothing but to make my escape, never to return, and I regretted that I could not throw on the table a handful of ducats, which I should have considered the price of my ransom. The poor girl showed me her drawings. They were fine, and I praised them, without alluding particularly to Eve, and without venturing a joke upon Adam. I asked her, for the sake of saying something, why she did not try to render her talent remunerative by learning pastel drawing. "'I wish I could,' she answered, "'but the box of chalks alone cost two sequins. "'Will you forgive me if I am bold enough to offer you six? "'Alas, I accept them gratefully, "'and to be indebted to you for such a service makes me truly happy. "'Unable to keep back her tears, "'she turned her head round to conceal them from me,' and I took that opportunity of laying the money on the table, and out of politeness, wishing to spare her every unnecessary humiliation, I saluted her lips with a kiss which she was at liberty to consider a loving one, as I wanted her to ascribe my reserve to the respect I felt for her. I then left her with a promise to call another day to see her father. I never kept my promise. The reader will see how I met her again after ten years." how many thoughts crowded upon my mind as i left that house what a lesson i compared reality with the imagination and i had to give the preference to the last as reality is always dependent on it i then began to foresee a truth which has been clearly proved to me in my after life namely that love is only a feeling of curiosity more or less intense grafted upon the inclination placed in us by nature that the species may be preserved. And, truly, woman is like a book, which, good or bad, must at first please us by the frontispiece. If this is not interesting, we do not feel any wish to read the book, and our wish is in direct proportion to the interest we feel. The frontispiece of woman runs from top to bottom like that of a book, and her feet, which are most important to every man who shares my taste, offer the same interest as the edition of the work. If it is true that most amateurs bestow little or no attention upon the feet of a woman, it is likewise a fact that most readers care little or nothing whether a book is of the first edition or the tenth. At all events, women are quite right to take the greatest care of their face, of their dress, of their general appearance, for it is only by that part of the frontispiece that they can call forth a wish to read them in those men who have not been endowed by nature with the privilege of blindness. And just in the same manner that men, who have read a great many books, are certain to feel at last a desire for perusing new works, even if they are bad, a man who has known many women, and all handsome women, feels at last a curiosity for ugly specimens when he meets with entirely new ones. It is all very well for his eye to discover the paint which conceals the reality, but his passion has become a vice, and suggests some argument in favour of the lying frontispiece. It is possible, at least he thinks so, that the work may prove better than the title-page, and the reality more acceptable than the paint which hides it. He then tries to peruse the book, but the leaves have not been opened. He meets with some resistance. The living book must be read according to established rules, and the bookworm falls a victim to a coquetry, the monster which persecutes all those who make a business of love. As for thee, intelligent man, who hast read the few preceding lines, let me tell thee that, if they do not assist in opening thy eyes, thou art lost. I mean that thou art certain of being a victim to the fair sex to the very last moment of thy life. If my candour does not displease thee, accept my congratulations. In the evening I called upon Madame Orio, as I wanted to inform her charming nieces that, being an inmate of Grimani's house, I could not sleep out for the first night. I found there the faithful Rosa, who told me that the affair of the alibi was in every mouth and that, as such celebrity, was evidently caused by a very decided belief in the untruth of the alibi itself, I ought to fear a retaliation of the same sort on the part of Rosetta, and to keep on my guard, particularly at night. I felt all the importance of this advice, and I took care never to go out in the evening otherwise than in a gondola, or accompanied by some friends. Madame Manzoni told me that I was acting wisely, because, although the judges could not do otherwise than acquit me, everybody knew the real truth of the matter, and Rosetta could not fail to be my deadly foe. Three or four days afterwards M. Grimani announced the arrival of the bishop, who had put up at the convent of his order at St. Francois du Paul. He presented me himself to the prelate as a jewel highly prized by himself, and as if he had been the only person worthy of descanting upon its beauty. I saw a fine monk wearing his pectoral cross. He would have reminded me of Father Mancia if he had not looked stouter and less reserved. He was about thirty-four, and had been made a bishop by the grace of God, the Holy See, and my mother. After pronouncing over me a blessing, which I received kneeling, and giving me his hand to kiss, he embraced me warmly, calling me his dear son in the Latin language, in which he continued to address me. I thought that, being a Calabrian, he might feel ashamed of his Italian, but he undeceived me by speaking in in that language to M. Grimani. He told me that, as he could not take me with him from Venice, I should have to proceed to Rome, where Grimani would take care to send me, and that I would procure his address at Ancona from one of his friends, called Lazzari, a Minim monk, who would likewise supply me with the means of continuing my journey. When we meet in Rome, he added, we can go together to Martorano by way of Naples. Call upon me to-morrow morning and have your breakfast with me. I intend to leave the day after." As we were on our way back to his house, M. Grimani treated me to a long lecture on morals, which nearly caused me to burst into loud laughter. Amongst other things, he informed me that I ought not to study too hard, because the air in Calabria was very heavy, and I might become consumptive from too close application to my books. The next morning at daybreak I went to the bishop. After saying his Mass, we took some chocolate and for three hours he laid me under examination. I saw clearly that he was not pleased with me, but I was well enough pleased with him. He seemed to me a worthy man, and, as he was to lead me along the great highway of the Church, I felt attracted towards him, for, at the time, although I entertained a good opinion of my personal appearance, I had no confidence whatever in my talents. After the departure of the good bishop, M. Grimani gave me a letter left by him, which I was to deliver to Father Lazzari at the convent of the Minims in Ancona. M. Grimani informed me that he would send me to that city with the ambassador from Venice, who was on the point of sailing. I had, therefore, to keep myself in readiness, and, as I was anxious to be out of his hands, I approved all his arrangements. As soon as I had notice of the day on which the suite of the ambassador would embark, I went to pay my last farewell to all my acquaintances. I left my brother, Francois, in the school of M. Jolie, a celebrated decorative painter. As the payata in which I was to sail would not leave before daybreak, I spent the short night in the arms of the two sisters, who, this time, entertained no hope of ever seeing me again. On my side I could not foresee what would happen, for I was abandoning myself to fate, and I thought it would be useless to think of the future. The night was therefore spent between joy and sadness, between pleasures and tears. As I bade them adieu I returned the key which had opened so often for me the road to happiness. This, my first love affair, did not give me any experience of the world, for our intercourse was always a happy one, and was never disturbed by any quarrel or stained by any interested motive. We often felt, all three of us, as if we must raise our souls towards the eternal providence of God, to thank Him for having, by His particular protection, kept from us all the accidents which might have disturbed the sweet peace we were enjoying. I left in the hands of Madame Manzoni all my papers and all the forbidden books I possessed. The good woman, who was twenty years older than I, and who, believing in an immutable destiny, took pleasure in turning the leaves of the great book of fate, told me that she was certain of restoring to me all I left with her before the end of the following year at the latest. Her prediction caused me both surprise and pleasure and feeling deep reverence for her, I thought myself bound to assist the realization of her foresight. After all, if she predicted the future, it was not through superstition or in consequence of some vain foreboding which reason must condemn, but through her knowledge of the world and of the nature of the person she was addressing. She used to laugh because she never made a mistake. I embarked from St. Mark's Landing. M. Grimani had given me ten sequins, which he thought would keep me during my stay in the lazaretto of Ancona for the necessary quarantine, after which it was not to be supposed that I could want any money. I shared Grimani's certainty on the subject, and with my natural thoughtlessness I cared nothing about it. Yet I must say that, unknown to everybody, I had in my purse forty bright sequins which powerfully contributed to increase my cheerfulness, and I left Venice full of joy and without one regret. End of chapter seven, part two.